You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Welcome back, friends. Please make sure your pod seat and tray table are in their upright and locked position. The airlock is sealed and docking clamps have been released for an on-time departure to the Functional Nerdverse. Greetings, nerdlings. So uh, I'm... We talk often about the different guests we have and like who we're super excited to have on. And I feel a little bit bad sometimes in retrospect when I do that, because I feel like I'm doing the thing that as both a teacher and a parent, I should know better than to do, which is the whole you don't, you have favorites, you always have favorites, right? But you don't pick favorites, you don't speak of the favorites, I love them all equally, et cetera, et cetera. And then you book Blake Crouch. And so we have Blake Crouch on, and that should mean something to you, I hope, if you're into, you know, really intense intellectual revelatory fantasy and, and science fiction that sort of blur the lines into one another. And we've got so much to talk about with Upgrade, his latest book just having come out. And Blake, how are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. So, all right, catch us up on, on Upgrade, your, your most recent book. So... I really wanted to write Upgrade after I finished Dark Matter, but when I started diving into the research it would require to, you know, peel back the layers of gene editing, I got pretty demoralized. It just seemed like suddenly I would tired. have to suddenly tired, <laughs> um, sad robot. Uh, I, I just I didn't feel like I had the um, the headspace that I was in the right mental space to do it at that point in time. So I went and did something that turned out to be equally complicated was writing a book that's basically about time travel or memory travel, which was recursion. Yeah. That is, that's what all um, science fiction writers who were like, that's too hard. What's easier do they they go straight to time travel every time. My my favorite, my favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. Mm. (laughs) But, um, but a meta time travel joke is great. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, that joke took me out of my story. <laughs> that's, that's you were crazy. you were you were going down the road of headspace, no, he and you decided to do great. something else. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That's Patrick's job. <laughs> so I so I wrote uh, I wrote recursion, and then finished that. Wrote a novella and, and did some other things. And when it started coming time to write the next book, I, I was like, you know, you have to you have to write about this. It's what I did know of gene editing at the time was fascinating and timely. And it's such a, um, well, all, you know, like memory travel, mm-hmm. multiverse yeah. travel, that stuff. Right. No one's right. saying that stuff will never be possible, but it's pretty speculative. Whereas gene editing is not speculative at all. It's, it's here. And I said, I've got to do this. And I, I, so I jumped in and I started writing this approach to the book that I had envisioned in my head as almost being this Jurassic Park. It was like gene editing that was building creatures, mm-hmm. building crazy plant life, this sort of little uh, oasis in the uh, rainforest in South Africa, South America. Mm-hmm. And I wrote 70,000 words of it and then came to this painful conclusion that you know, I wasn't writing about how it affects humanity. I was writing about all these other things. And I was at the midpoint of the book, 70,000 words in. And I didn't, actually, I wasn't at the midpoint. I didn't know where I was going. Oh, yeah. And so I tossed all of these ideas out and tossed 300-something pages out, took a beat, and 
decided to attack gene editing from the focus of how does this affect humanity? How does this affect each and every one of us? And once I, you know, told myself I'm going to do this, it became a joy to write. And I realized that this was always what this book wanted to be. It, it wanted to be a book about a guy who is fairly average, gets an upgrade that affects his intelligence, his speed, his strength. And he gets to sort of have this life he never imagined, but always wanted. And, and I, I don't want to give away too much, but right. Yeah. 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 So, okay. I have to ask because I think it's important. A lot of people who listen to our podcast are also writers and are, are people who are interested in the whole writing process. So how did you get past the whole, oh no, there's this sort of great gulf of information and education that I'd need to kind of dive into to tackle this? Like what what was that process for you? Did you just kind of go with the whole, I'm going to be the polymath of gene editing now? Did you did you consult with experts? Like where did the, mm-hmm. where was the genesis? I mean, like anything, you just do it. It's hard and you don't do it. You don't get to write the book. And if you do it, then you get to write the book. There's not a, there's no real secrets. I I did find an amazing subject matter uh, expert, Dr. Michael Wiles worked at the Jackson laboratories in Bar Harbor, Maine at the time that I was writing the book. And Michael essentially taught me like 95% of what I know about genetics and DNA. And I've never had a subject matter, matter expert do this before, but I said, would you redline my manuscript? Because <laughs> where like, you know, with quantum mechanics, I mean, I always have subject matter experts, but it's more like I know these certain paragraphs in the book are, you know, science heavy. And I just want to make sure I'm presenting concepts right. Yeah. But the yeah. gene conversation in Upgrade is in every single page. It's just the manuscript is rife with it. And I didn't know another way to do it. And mm-hmm. luckily Michael agreed and, gave me back wonderful notes and thoughts and it, and it really helped me start to see all of like the blind spots in my understanding of genetics, but also helped me think bigger about what I was doing with my characters and actually take the, uh, some of these concepts even further than I was intending to. That's amazing. Now I, I, I always come at these things from weird angles and, and Tracy knows that. And right now she's cringing, but uh, are you familiar with Star Trek at all? I've never heard of that. No. <laughs> in Star Trek, uh, they they have a ban on genetic editing and gene editing. Like they they, they is ban that it. True. Yeah. Is that is that throughout all? Is that throughout? Like that's when, when was that rule? In, was that introduced even in the because of because of Khan. series because or of Khan. Oh. So 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 in the timeline of of Star Trek, uh, like I think we're already past it, but we're supposed to be uh, in the eugenics war. Mm. where where uh you know genetically modified humans are trying to take over and then that causes like the war and, and world war three and blah 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 and so for earth and the federation it's a big deal to not have yeah. anybody be be modified that way so huh. and, and that was that was part of uh star trek for a very very long time so i'm just curious wow, those, like, those writers were so 
optimistic about where we would be at this point. No, we're not having a eugenics war. We're just having a yeah. stupid war about stupid things. <laughs> I, I, I actually love old science fiction authors a lot of times. Like I can't read a lot of the old science science fiction yeah, anymore, yeah. but I, I love the idea of, you know, oh, it's in the far flung future of 1990 and, you know, our Mars colony has exploded. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 1990. Yeah. <laughs> 1990. Yeah. We're in the far uh, reaches of 2022 and <laughs> we have less rights than we had 70 years ago. Yeah. Well, you look at, you look at, you look at uh, the Buck Rogers TV show in the late seventies, early eighties. And they're like, you know, and, and the year is 19, what is it? 89. And NASA's launched the last of earth's deep space probes. It's like, come on guys. It's a decade away. Anyway, the point is, after going through this process and learning about this stuff, like, do you do you see the the do you see a, a, a part of our population, given everything that's going on in the world today, absolutely wanting to ban this kind of stuff, and like thinking that this is dangerous? Yeah, I, I don't think it's it'll be it would be based on knowledge. It would just be based on uh, you know listening to whatever the mouthpieces are for that particular exactly. group, yeah. telling them that. Yeah, they, I think they would agree with anything that set aside. I, I think that a lot of um, right now there is sort of a, an understanding in the gen world of genetics that like we don't do germline editing, which means you don't go, you don't go into embryos and, and mess with those because, you know, once you do that, you are not just editing that one embryo, you are editing all of its progeny and, you know, in forever. Um, unless you undo those edits. So I think that is, that is like sort of what the state of things are right now. Of course, occasionally China goes off uh, and does <laughs> yeah. what they want to do anyway. And I'm sure I'm a hundred percent sure this is happening in laboratories. Oh, regardless. sure. Um, I don't, I could see once people truly understand the full power of gene editing and, and once something like, like our current and best gene editing tool is CRISPR, Cas9, yeah. and it's light years ahead of all the things that came before it, yeah. and it can do a lot of amazing things. But it still is not exactly fully dialed in to the extent the technology I created in the book Scythe is. Mm -hmm. Scythe for me was like the next generation of CRISPR, and that and Scythe is the thing I think we had something on the order of that level of power and specificity and precision. Yeah, I think you would have real conversations uh, about what to what what is allowed and what isn't because you can't just give this power to anyone um even people who, who intend to mean well could truly wreck up our ecosystem oh sure well i mean just me personally if someone told me that you know they could press a button and i'd never have to wear glasses again i'd be like press the goddamn button <laughs> yeah yeah let's go yeah. If you knew that was the only, but it, uh, yeah, sure. If you knew that was the only thing it would affect, but genes are not one-to-one. -one. There's, there's no good eyesight gene. There's yeah, a whole yeah. host of gene systems all working together in these crazy complicated ways that so I, determine yeah. whether or not you see well or, or don't. Yeah. And, and, and see, having control over that is far more complicated than pressing and, the button. And without knowing anything at all about it, I, I, I just know myself and I know mm -hmm. that how it would work is, yes, we can press this button and you will never have to wear glasses again. However, you will have troll feet. You would still yeah. do it? 
I would probably still do it. I'd be walking around with the big hairy feet, you know, kind of green, huge toes, but I would not have to wear glasses anymore. I would not have to be constantly pushing them up my nose. And because yeah, I can't do contacts, I can't do things towards I my can't. eye. I'm not doing, I don't no do anything way. towards my eyes. No, no. I, I can barely put eye drops in my eyes. It's I can't. a whole ordeal if I have to put yeah. eye drops. I'm like, Oh no, no. Yeah, I it always misses or I blink yep. right as the draw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They want to dilate my eyes at the eye doctor and it, they go through like a gallon of it because I'm just constantly going whoop, 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 and I'm just moving in the chair like You're moving in bullet time just like yeah, yeah. the whole time. Yeah. Oh yeah. They're just messing with you. They don't have to dilate your eyes anymore to do that. <laughs> That's not necessary anymore. Where are you going? What eye doctor are you going to? Uh the last one I went to was at Parker Adventist uh Medical Center. Um, it was like a, I forget their name, but they're like, it's a long know. alley and then there's a dumpster and it's right <laughs> no. next to a taco bell. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, I don't know the name, but, uh, they were like a big deal. My doctor mm-hmm. recommended them and everything. Cause I was like, I want a real eye doctor. And so she sent me to the medical center. Oh, no, nice. Yeah, I mean, it's the whole trade-off. It's it's the whole trade-off question, and we do we do these trade-offs all the time. Like, if we truly wanted to live longer, there's all sorts of things we would be doing instead of all of the habits that we have. So I'm sure, ooh, if there's ever a button that you can really push or a procedure you can go into, you know, you'll weigh it against all the other yeah potential downsides, like the troll feet. So a couple minutes ago, <laughs> yeah, right, like the troll feet. A couple minutes ago, Blake, you mentioned the whole yeah. There's going to be people who will sort of like knee jerk want to forbid mm-hmm. because they they have sort of envisioned um, they have a the, they have a certain notion of what this will mean and they will believe or because God doesn't make mistakes. Right, so why do right. you mess with the um, uh, yeah yeah. So this kind of takes me. We're gonna we're gonna get in the the wayback machine here of. Um, uh, a Tracy story. So background for Blake, because he hasn't had to deal with my bullshit before, <laughs> but I'm, you know, by trade, a science fiction and fantasy teacher and, and creative writing teacher. And I, I happen to do this at a STEM Academy for gifted students. And so oh, cool. um, I'm constantly marinating in the world of sort of tech and science and geekiness. And also like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's the fucking X-Men. <laughs> so anyway, one of my favorite stories that I think kind of encapsulates one of the things that is uh, the opposite of people's expectations about science fictional thinking goes all the way back to H.G. Wells and E.M. Forster and the fact <laughs> that they hated each other and they would literally fight at parties. And I don't mean fight at parties like, no, sir, I believe that you are wrong in the matter of, I mean, they fucking threw chairs at each other. Like these uh, guys would go after each, it was an understood deal in. E.M. Forrester, what did he write? He, he wrote. Um, Passage like, to India. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, okay. So here's the E.M. Forrester, H.G. Wells story that I think encapsulates a lot of what what's really at stake when science fictionally minded people think about the future, right? Mm -hmm. So E.M. Forster hated science fiction and he hated science fiction for two reasons. One, it was getting to be really popular and Mm -hmm. was making a lot of money and he kind of resented that a lot. But two, he specifically resented H.G. Wells as an author who was a contemporary of his because he felt like the visions that Wells was exploring were going to encourage us to embrace a dangerous and sort of dehumanized future, which clearly indicates that he had not read Wells. He just sort of made some assumptions because if you ever read H.G. Wells, you know that's not, that's not where this guy is coming from. Anyway, so E.M. Forster and and H.G. Wells hate each other so much that it is an understood thing amongst like Edwardian 
socialites that you do not invite them both to the same party or they're going to try and kill each other with the clam boning knife (laughs) and it's going to be bad. Forster hates Wells so much, hates the whole concept of science fiction so much, he's very much a Luddite, that he decides his best solution is he's going to write a story that's going to wreck science fiction. He's going to write a story that's going to like end this thing. And it's going to so terrify people about what a science fictional future could look like that people would be like, oh, shut this industrialization thing down. This is bad. We don't want this. We're going to be full modernist here. So Ian Forster writes The Machine Stops. And The Machine Stops, for those of you who haven't read it, is basically an extremely verbally fraught version of WALL-E, except not in space. But basically, WALL-E is sort of the plot of The Machine Stops. It is human beings have become so dependent upon technology that we are basically useless blobs until finally the machine itself breaks down. We can't take care of ourselves anymore. And spoiler alert, the story is like 120 years old now. So I'm not really spoiling anything. <laughs> like everyone's had a chance to read it. You've had your chance. I've, I've kept my lips up <laughs> for long enough here, kids, that the, the story ends in basically apocalypse. Right. And he was like, aha sits back and he's like, I have done it. I have killed the sci-fi. Now the irony of it is it turns out that E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops is the most anthologized science fiction story of all time. Wow. So the poor bastard was, did the biggest literary cell phone of all time. It's amazing. <laughs> Although on the other hand, he gets residuals or his estate did. So I don't know. Maybe it's not so bad. I wonder if he was happy with the reception. I don't know. I don't know. He really was not. I mean, I think critically, he liked the fact that people were engaged with the story. But then I think when he saw that the science fiction community embraced it, he was like, no, 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 what are you doing? No, 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 no. <laughs> so my point in this very long tangent to bring it back to Blake, to bring it back to this larger conversation of gene editing, is I think the assumption that people make about science fictionally minded storytelling is that it wants the futures that it explores. Hmm. When the truth is, I think a lot of science fiction is extremely cautionary. It's, I'm using conservative, not in a political sense, but in a sense of it, it, it pumps the brakes. It asks us to consider nuance. It asks us to consider unintended consequences or troll feet. You know, it kind of, it's trying to get us to look at the whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff from a more sophisticated perspective. So really what you've got is you've written like a transhumanism novel where we're looking at what transhumanism can become and going, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, I mean, it's it's also, it's a really, by the way, I want to read that story now. I don't think I've ever read Machine <laughs> Stops. I wonder how many people it turned into sci-fi fans. That's the best part. He probably created know, more right? sci-fi I fans. I just love the fact that like great. he lost. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think like for th- this is, I guess, the first like I, recursion. Neither recursion or um, dark matter were really uh, like warnings or harbingers. I mean, obviously, anytime you build a very powerful tech, you're going to end up exploring the downside of it, and there's a inherent, you know, be careful message. Mm-hmm. But with upgrade, I really wanted it to not even feel too much like science fiction. I don't know. And I, I kind of think we're moving out of really the space, the, the space of science fiction mm-hmm. being a thing anymore because it does sort of feel like we're living in the future now, such as it is. We are living in this time where it feels like so much is at the same time accelerating is also like rolling backwards. Uh, it, it's not, I think anything like anyone possibly could have imagined is weird like writing 
upgrade. I was trying to write a near future. This is how fast the future comes at you. When I was writing upgrade, I was trying to write a very near future America. And in all of, you know, the couple of years I spent thinking about that, looking at what that might look like, it never occurred to me. And I wish I had to incorporate the loss of human rights yeah. that we are faced literally since I quit writing that book or since I yeah. finished that book. Yeah. I, I, that, that happened in six months and I would have never imagined that uh, we would be where we are today. Mm-hmm. Roe rolled back and horrifyingly all these other things on the potentially on the chopping block. So I don't know if, and I would be curious to see what y'all think of this, that, that mm-hmm. science fiction is sort of redundant now. It's just like writing about this very crazy time that, that we're in and trying to make sense of it. I, I told Tracy, I said, I, you know, I'm, I've been, I've been very, I've been very down lately mm-hmm. and <laughs> yesterday didn't help as we were recording this on a Saturday and uh, yesterday did not help. It, it's, it's interesting to me that when you look at science fiction, science fiction is always trying to predict a little bit and technologically like mm-hmm. the technology is is there, right? Yeah. Uh, I always go back to Star Trek because that's that's where I grew up. That was my that was mm-hmm. my babysitter, and and you know you had the flip communicators became flip cell phones. Mm-hmm. You had the 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 pads where they would write on the pads to to do the report, and now we have iPads with pencils mm-hmm. and and different tablets and stuff that you can tablet computers. So like technologically, there's a lot of influence there. You have a lot of people who went into NASA and went into the sciences because of that. You, you culturally, I think Babylon Five actually kind of predicted the cultural wars that we're going mm. through a little bit now, because mm. you know it, it, it's been years. So to Tracy's point, it's been years. So I'm going to talk about some spoilers of Babylon Five here. But you know, you had you had a a, a president that that people loved who was uh, assassinated. And then the vice president takes over and he's a puppet and, you know, he, he kind of brings in this fascist regime where it's, you know, earth first, humans first, and, you know, get rid of the aliens and alien influences is bad. And, Mm. and all this kind of stuff is happening in the Babylon five. And like, I always go back to that. And so culturally Babylon (laughs) five, you know, I think a lot. I, I think that we have we're going up on technology and we're kind of coming back down culturally on a lot of well, things. Well, I think they're connected, right? Yeah, potentially. Yeah. Because, well, I mean, because you know, it's not like shit people didn't exist, right? Forty or fifty years ago, we just weren't necessarily privy to every horrible yeah. thing coming out of their mind, whether yeah. on the various social social media platforms. So technology has made it, yeah, possible. Yeah, social yeah. media yeah. made it every, possible yeah. to be hyper aware of all of it mm-hmm. and it's also you know, obviously it makes organization easier for both sides to the you know the good side and the dark side and, and i've always said that you know even before social media you know it wasn't until cable news mm. that we start like have there always been mass murders and stuff or are we only now finding out about it because of cable news because cable mm-hmm. news you know in the 80s and 90s had to have something to show, had to have something to talk about. So they're looking for these news stories. And then, you know, very famously, we get the line, if it bleeds, it leads. 
Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, as these horrible things are happening, like they were probably always happening. We just didn't know because it never right. hit us. Like it yeah. never hit our newspaper. It never hit our local news. Yeah, yeah. It's weird because I think people always assume the things that, including me, the things that like the idea that like we get to a point where we are smart enough and advanced enough to create technology that it, that destroys us. The atomic bomb, mm-hmm. yeah. genetic editing, time travel, right. good if we potentially. But weirdly, I just don't think anyone realized that like the creation of uh, a news channel, the creation of social media could actually be the thing that we can't handle. Like we've yeah. always known that religion is just, we're, we're just, it, it's yeah. too tough for us to, it's too tough yeah. for us as a species to really handle religion. It just breaks our brain. It, 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 it over it short circuits, like logic centers. I, I think we've known that, but these things that we create that undermine us and that lead us down these very, very dangerous paths. And I'm sure like, uh, I don't think that this is like the end of our species. I don't want to be hyperbolic about it. But we're definitely heading down a very, very yeah. treacherous road here. Um, much I faster. I think. We're seeing the science fictional shift that you were talking about before, mm-hmm. where you know you said that you don't feel like there really is a space for science fiction because we we're already sort of living in it. And this is a dated example, but it's not that dated when you really think about it. But the film version of of William Gibson's uh, short story Johnny Mnemonic. Mm-hmm. is a wonderful time capsule of, for one thing, fucking absurdity. Like there's a there's a, there's an actual assassin whose tagline before he kills people is Jesus time. But uh, anyway, let's let's <laughs> really? on that for a moment. It, no, it is. It's a whole thing. And so like I I am I'm at the queen of recommending terrible movies to people because they're sort of so awful that they kind of come around the bend to their mm-hmm. own kind of transcendent somethingness. And Johnny Mnemonic is one of these. But one of the reasons that I hold on to that film the way that I do, in addition to it being rank and horrible, is the fact that it's a wonderful example of the outer limits of how we write about science fiction. And when you hit that wall, how you have to turn it into a different direction. Hmm. The whole plot of Johnny Mnemonic is that this guy who is a human thumb drive, because we Hmm. hadn't imagined that that could happen. Flash drives aren't a thing. So if you want to courier large amounts of data, you have to implant it in a person's physical head. And then they they move themselves from point A to point B and then get that information downloaded out of their head. And it's secured so that they don't really know what information is. Basically, it's a courier. It's a data courier. And the data courier has has sacrificed a certain amount of his brain space to hold on to parcels of data that corporations want him to move around securely. And he gets a job where, for whatever reason, they're not honest with him about uh, the specs of the job. And they end up somehow cramming into his brain more data than his brain space has has allowed to be allocated for this. And so he's experiencing data leak that's going to kill him. So he has to get the stuff out of his head soon or he's going to die because reasons. And so, but the whole, the wall that we hit here is not just human thumb drive, which now seems sort of absurd to us, although I guess kind of cool in a late 80s cyberpunk vibe. The wall that you hit is the fact that the critical data breach happens at 320 gigabytes. 
What? <laughs> so he's dying because all the information in the world. He's yeah. dying because there's more than 320 gigabytes that have been put into his brain. And I'm looking at an entry on Amazon now for a mid-level desktop tower computer that runs on solid state RAM for 512 gig. Wow. And like that that film is like, yeah, outside it's not quite 30 years old at this point i think or just slightly more than was 30. it 90s i thought it was in the yeah, 90s i think it's 90 i think it's yeah. 90 is it and, and, and i'll throw it out there tracy that yeah. a lot of external hard drives at this point are working in terabytes right and yeah. so given yeah. that it's it, it sound it's delivered because of course at the time that the film let alone when the story was written the short story is like 1986 and so like you drop those sort of numbers and like 320 gigabytes my god <laughs> all technology sort of ages out in this way which yeah. kind of goes back to you know talking about the last of the space probes being launched in 1989 kind of thing <laughs> and so when we know that we're going to hit that science fictional wall of what we have imagined future technology looks like and we realize that we're kind of living in future technology already but just not the way we thought we would be we have to turn towards something else. And so we mm-hmm. turn towards the human element of what are the technologies we have failed to cope with? What are the mm-hmm. technologies that we're still negotiating with? You mm-hmm. know, And that's, mm-hmm. that's the social media. That's the intrusion of the larger world into our personal space. Um, what, what's, the technology, what's the technology that we're still waiting for? Yeah. You know, where's my jetpack? I saw a jetpack recently. Uh, I was at XPRIZE in... Uh, California a couple of years ago and uh, mm-hmm. they were like everyone said come outside we have a surprise this dude all dressed it looked like a motorcycle sort of outfit yeah, like all, yeah, all yeah. black rocketeer just mm-hmm. blasted out on a blasted in on a jetpack fuel, fuel is a problem but uh, do you know the you know the I, I'm hoping you guys know the movie uh, a Christmas story mm-hmm. with, yeah. with you know <laughs> oh you can't have a BB gun you'll put your eye out kid. Donardo from SF Signal has always been, you know, I've always talked about the, the jetpack. He's like, you can't have a jetpack. You'll kill yourself. Mm. Like, you'll kill yourself. You'll kill other people. You'll 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 crash. You'll burn. You'll start wildfires. He doesn't just mean the, the general second person. No. He means he, he's specifically, just, he, yeah, Patrick, he's like, the rest he's of like, us yeah. are getting jetpacks. Mine's he's coming like, today. No. He's like, you can't, <laughs> you, you, you can't have a jetpack. The jetpack is just, it's not ever going to happen. But we've got electric cars. We've got self-driving cars. We've got cars that can park, right? Mm-hmm. Someone someone was recently saying to me, do you remember when in, in the driver's test you had to parallel park? And I said, well, no, because I took my test in California and there's no such thing in California. <laughs> I said, that's an East Coast thing. Yeah. In East Coast, yeah. you have to parallel park. You know, West Coast, you have parking lots. East Coast... <laughs> You, you don't really have like you go to New York City, you have to parallel park. I said, but if I had to, I would just sell my car and go buy a new car because the new cars has the button. You never and have to like, do it. What button? You never I have said, to do it. You yeah. pull up, you hit the button, the car parks itself. My son just got his license. They, they still give parallel parking. Yeah. Really? That's still an aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't He's remember. never had to do it. He's no. never had to do it. No. Right. Fresno, like we're, we're, I don't even know where in Fresno you would parallel park. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think we're also back. You know, think of all the things that had happened when like sci-fi and the, you know, especially like the thirties and forties were written. Like we went from not being able to fly around the world to being able to fly around the world. And I mean, the, the, at least I think the perception of the future really coming quickly and all these new things coming at you just felt like that was happening. It doesn't feel that way anymore. It feels like, yeah, there's cars that can park and we're slowly handing off our, um, 
autonomy to the chatbot on Uber because I, I instead of typing out a text, I'll just select whatever options it gives me. And you can yeah. extrapolate that out to really crazy uh, levels where it, isn't it just about us being lazy? I mean, that is really what we're doing. We're just not doing anything anymore and letting the computers do all the things well, and for that, us. You know, bringing it kind of fuller circle there. That's that's really what E.M. Forrester was writing about in The Machine mm-hmm. Stops. And that mm-hmm. was what, what made him angry about science fiction. And I think, interestingly enough, that is the thing that even as in the practical way we live in the larger world, we are tempted by those efficiency measures and we mm-hmm. use them. I think that that people, again, who are accustomed to speculative thinking and who, who their bread and butter is imagining these stories, they do parcel those sacrifices out. They do kind of think about the implications, um, mm-hmm. maybe even as they're pressing the button for the Uber chatbot, right. but you know, they're, they're at least unpacking it. I, I want to know who, who decided that autocorrect and spell check and predictive text needed to be tied together. Because that I format with the arms. No, no, no. I like I, I turned it off on my phone because it was driving me insane. And then I was no longer getting spell check. So mm-hmm. predictive text and spell check are kind of tied together. And I have They're to like, tell oh, you, you don't want spell check? You don't want predictive yeah. text? Well, fuck you. Why don't you exactly. just not spell I, anything right? It's like yeah. it's almost like there's yeah, a I, element to it. I duck and bait it. I do. I duck and bait it. It's terrible. <laughs> That's my joke a little bit. Pretty yeah, that's just a good job. We, we were right there with you. Oh, I was laughing. I had my mute button on. I'm sorry. No, it's true. Crying. Yeah, that, I, we were, you looked uh, just in an uproar yeah. of hilarity. Yeah. So while we're in a good mood here, and before we kind of switch gears to picks of the week, I feel like we would be completely remiss not to mention that you've also got your life very busy now with Apple TV because there's there is a deal for Dark Matter as a television series and you're you're writing and show running for it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so first congratulations thank you and and second i i need you to edumacate me and possibly also some of our listeners in the lingo of television development what is the distinction between being a writer and being a showrunner like clearly one one sounds biggish yeah yeah um most well yeah it's it gets complicated um most head writers are showrunners because the writing guides as opposed to film where, you know, you write a draft and everyone pays intense attention to you when you've finished your draft, you know, you're summarily dismissed for the most part. But unfortunately for those people in television, they need the writer to keep writing because there are episodes to come. And so that person ultimately ends up basically kind of being the boss of the whole thing because writing truly does drive television. So showrunners ultimately just responsible and accountable for every creative facet of the show. Don't you don't you don't you yeah. try to keep yeah. it like cohesive? Like a continuity thing as well? Yep, yeah. yeah. I mean you have tons of people working with you who who help keep the, the minutiae of everything aligned, especially continuity and you know, when you go to filming. But yeah, I mean it is a uh, it is a it is a fun amazing exhausting overwhelming job that there are not enough hours in in the day to to really do does it feel at all weird to to have so many people now invested in and working in a story that began with you that that up until this recent times just was you this was this was blake's Mm -hmm. and now it is sort of 
it is the property of this larger creative team that we're yeah. working together. It's, yeah, I mean, it's 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 lovely because if you have, when you hire the right people who are excited about your vision and the story, then you're all kind of now driving the same way, same direction together, and you get the benefit of a lot of smart people. Now yeah. it's like almost getting a do-over on the book yeah. because things that either wasn't happy with or that's the best idea I had. Now I, you know, I have the benefit of time and other brains coming in and, and able to actually improve and, and take some, some new directions. I, I wish I'd done in the book. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you, and so I have a, a couple of questions. Do you have to join the writer's guild to? Yeah. I mean, if you really ever write a script for, um, you know, a TV show or, or a film, you know, for a studio, that's a signatory of the guild. Yeah. You, basically have to join the guild. It's a great thing. It's the best health insurance in the world. And <laughs> sure. Yeah. It's no, I mean, it's a, it's a very good thing. Is there, is there like a showrunners uh, guild, like an Illuminati thing and you guys all meet once you're like a G8 <laughs> No. And, and you're sitting across it's, the table from Russell T Davies talking about Dr. Who. Not anyway. <laughs> Illumina, Illuminati. <laughs> uh, no, there, and there's no real, um, there's not really any training for it. It's just, you you know, I, I've done a couple of shows in the past. I, I haven't like been the the one the really guy. out front, yeah. the guy, but I've been sort of arm in arm with the guy before. And it's, it's this is the third show that I've worked on, and it's more of a you you learn as you go. It's it's there's there's almost I don't mean like in a there is an apprenticeship element to it because you learn from the people who you've worked with. And it's not like you're sitting down and they're telling you now do this this. You just learn by observing. And mm-hmm. I would say the people who are successful at it are the people who can absorb process streamline and figure out how to make work for themselves vast amounts of information um as they have had a chance to see it have a window into production on other things well based on some second season network tv shows that i've watched in the past i fully believe you when you say there is no training to be a showrunner (laughs) yeah (laughs) oh yeah nope nope the best thing i mean at the end of the day it's Write great, write great scripts and get them producible scripts and make sure they're in as early as possible so people can start yep. executing yeah, you know, the vision. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I say execute your vision. You say register their complaints, you know. Six potato, in one hand, potato. Half a dozen in the other. Yeah. yeah. There's, um, yeah. Oof. Well, then in the midst of all of that, it seems like a, a good time to reflect on good things. So picks of the week. We found picks of the week. Picks of the week. Picks of the Tracy, you want to go first and show Blake how it's done? Sure, sure. I have a visual aid, which is super helpful for an audio-only podcast. Everyone's <laughs> going to love this. Um, so, right, we, if, you, if you could see me right now, in addition to seeing me in my extremely fetching basement, um, you would see me holding up a book. It's got a picture of a duck and a bunch of rainbow stuff. I have been reading uh, Queer Ducks and Other Animals, uh, which is a book about the the natural world of animal sexuality. And although it is not written as um, a children's book, it's written by an author who originally began uh, his career in YA and middle grade fiction. And then uh, because the author himself, uh, Elliot Scherfer, is gay, he got really interested in um, just sort of how sexuality manifests, you know, zoologically, sort of across the spectrum of species. Uh, and so kind of going back to what you were talking about, Blake, about the kind of needing to to do a deep dive into understanding your topic more, um, 
Scherfer did a lot of research into animal sexuality and met with a lot of experts and has written a uh, frankly hilarious, really engaging book that is all about bisexual penguins and polyamorous jaguars and uh, both in the wild and in zoos and how frequently and uh, completely normal it is for animals to exist in relationships that don't yield uh, breeding, so to speak, uh, but clearly are uh, relationships of their choice and of their election that occur naturally. Um, and so it's been a really fun and interesting read. Um, it's really well sourced. Uh, all of the the footnotes are there, and all of the additional readings sort of mapped out. And again, although it's not explicitly written as a as a book for kids, it's very approachable in its writing. So I highly suggest you check out Queer Ducks and Other Animals by Elliot Scherfer. Awesome, awesome, sounds amazing. Blake, how about you? Do you have a pick for us this week? Yeah, um, I was uh, I had taken my kids to. Uh, the UK for a kind of a last big vacation before the hectic filming schedule starts. And we were in London back several days ago and went out to breakfast at this uh, restaurant, which I'm not going to remember the name of, but the owner of it is Otto Linge, who's has several restaurants in London. He wrote the book, Jerusalem, uh, very famous uh, Jeff. Anyway, I had the most amazing almond croissant I've ever had in my life. <laughs> And it brought me much joy. <laughs> and so, this okay. was actually in. go to London, get an almond yeah. croissant. <laughs> the memory of it kept me going this week. With, uh, <laughs> all the bad news, yeah. That's awesome. Uh, for me, I uh, I have a documentary, and I avoided this documentary. It came out in in 2016, so it's been six years, and I finally watched it. But I avoided it at the time because I knew it would wreck me. And Tracy knows and listeners knows uh, everything that I've been through. Blake does not. I, I was taking care of my mom who had Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so I knew that this documentary would wreck me and I avoided it. But I've kept it like in the back burner. I knew that at one point I wanted to watch it. So I finally watched it. It's uh, For the Love of Spock. And it's, it's directed by Adam Nimoy, who is Leonard Nimoy's son. It started as uh, Leonard Nimoy and Adam Nimoy doing this together to celebrate Star Trek's 50th anniversary, I think, 50th or 60th. And they, they were going to kind of do this together, and then Leonard Nimoy died. Mm -hmm. And so many people had such a reaction to his death and, and that, that Adam Nimoy decided to continue the project and kind of shift the focus into finding out why Spock and Leonard Nimoy meant so much to so many people. Hmm. And so it became an exploration of his entire career, not just what he did as Spock, but like everything that he did uh, and just looking at his life and also kind of exploring the tumultuous relationship that Adam had with his father because hmm. they, they were very different people and Adam was rebellious <laughs> and, and fought back against his dad. And one, one thing that I thought was interesting, he had to do a Kickstarter to raise the money so that he could license still photos of his father as Spock because he couldn't just use them. He had to yeah, license yeah. them from, from Paramount, Viacom, those folks. Uh, so he did a Kickstarter and he raised $600,000 mm -hmm. to, to get enough money to do this. And, uh, it's just, 
it's it's very emotional. Uh, mm. I, I mentioned earlier Star Trek. It was my babysitter. Like I I got sitting in front of the TV and I you know there was lots of things that I watched, but one of them was Star Trek. And mm. so this is something that's meant a lot to me for so many years. And to and Nimoy was uh, just wonderful, right? He's an actor. He did so much beyond Spock. He did Mission Impossible. People forget that. He did a show called In Search Of that I absolutely adored that was on PBS for many, many years. Uh, late in his life when he kind of came back and he started doing some Star Trek stuff with JJ. Uh, he also did Fringe and he played a great character uh, in Fringe. Um, and... It, he's just this huge figure <laughs> and I knew it would wreck me and it did wreck me just, you know, hearing Adam talk about all the, the stuff that he went through uh, with his dad throughout the years and then, and then learning about all these people and how, you know, how much Spock meant to them, how much Nimoy meant to them. So it's just, it's a wonderful documentary and it's done with a lot of love. So I feel like I've seen Spock. this over someone's shoulder on a plane at some point. Like I was like, I just kept noticing it. I kept seeing Leonard uh, Nimoy and I was like, what, what is that? What yeah. is it? It's called for the love of Spock for the love of Spock. Yeah. Uh, one great thing I didn't know is that at one point he actually sued. Uh, so if you didn't know this, uh, there would be no Star Trek without uh, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz yeah. because they started Desi Lou studios and Desi Lou greenlit Star Trek. So they were the, they were the production company. And um, he had to sue Paramount at one point who ended up owning like the rights and CBS uh, through a bunch of different sales and stuff. He had to sue them because he realized they were using his likeness and he hadn't received any royalties in a long time. Hmm. And so he wasn't going to be in the motion picture mm-hmm. because he had a lawsuit going. And it wasn't until they kind of worked that out that he was able to appear in the movies and, and keep going forward. So. Wow. Little things like that. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. I'm going to check it out. It's wonderful. All right. So we have a pretty chock full episode here in our hands. <laughs> so if folks um, have whetted their appetites enough to check out Upgrade or any of your other books, they're going to want to know where to find you and find your stuff. So, Blake, where should they go? What should they do? I mean, they should go to any bookstore, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, any bookstores. Uh, pretty easy to find. I will be uh, at San Diego Comic-Con this year. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't think the schedules have been announced, but I will be there uh, signing, doing a panel. And um, probably going to do a few uh, Zoom events. One of them uh, is going to be on, I believe it's July 12th. Uh, it should be on my website. It's um, with uh, it's a big, it's actually in conjunction with uh, Boulder Bookstore and Firehouse Books and Estes Park Library and Book Bar in Denver. Uh, I'm going to do a uh, just to kind of on the launch of uh, of upgrade, do a in conversation with Amor Tolls, and I'm sure there'll be some other things added as well when the book comes out. Not an actual book tour. I think we're still in that weird time where I'm sure yeah, book tours are really funky. a thing. It's kind of funky and it just doesn't really work with my schedule um, for this one. So, but yeah. And do you have a website and a preferred social? Yeah, uh, BlakeCrouch.com. I'm on Twitter, uh, BlakeCrouch1, and Instagram. Awesome. All right. Well, it's great having you on, Blake. Thanks. Thank you so much. This was a blast. Well, time, probably past time, for a new bumper. If you like this episode, thanks. (laughs) We liked making it for you. 
There's lots of ways you can support us moving forward. If you did like this episode, you could give us a review at Apple or Google Podcasts on Stitcher, Spotify, etc. There's lots of places out there. Wherever you listen to this podcast would be a great spot to go. Give us a couple stars, write a little review, tell folks how great we are. It would help. You could follow us on Twitter. Our account there is at FN underscore podcast. If you do that, please help us boost the signal by retweeting our stuff. You could take a look at our Facebook page and click like on it. Eh, I don't do a lot there, but it's a necessary evil. You could back us over at patreon.com slash functional nerds and throw a couple bucks our way each month. You could tell your friends about us and turn them onto the show. Any or all of that would be awesome. And I would really appreciate it, Todd. Now that this episode is over, you can also consider checking out our friends over at Beyond the Trope. Giles and Michelle put out an episode a week, just like we do, and they talk to writers, artists, and creatives from all over the place. They have a huge back catalog of episodes and have a lot of fun doing it, which comes through in their weekly episodes. So check them out over at beyondthetrope.com. As always, thanks for listening, and don't forget to tip your server on the way out. Mr. Carpiers. You got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. Oh, for God's sake. Patrick Louise. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably a good enough signal. (laughs) I'm so excited.